Well, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks and haven't met me yet, I, um, I was away on vacation, so I've been, I've been gone out of town, and, uh, and I was, was in Florida, actually, with my, um, with my family and my parents, and, uh, and there I had an injury, as some of you heard about, and so thank you for your prayers and your text and, uh, and your, your kindness I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling better, uh, so thanks for that. But yeah, so there was a, it was a, an eventful, um, it was eventful vacation. One of the things that's always interesting about seeing my parents is that I think because I'm um, a pastor and because I've done some study in theology, uh, whenever I'm with my parents, my dad likes to ask me lots of random questions about the Bible and about theology, most of which um, I don't have an answer for, actually. Uh, and uh, yeah, there are all kinds of questions that he thinks up, and, and I love them, I really do, they're so genuine. Uh, but as we were driving back through the kind of back roads of Alabama on our way back from the panhandle of Florida to Memphis, Tennessee, he, um, he asked me, he said, uh, Kyle, let me ask you a question, where did the Lord's Supper come from? And uh, that one I could answer. So I began to explain it, and and he said to me, he said, well, you know, I've, um, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We have it once a month at the church, um, and I've grown up my whole life in the church, but, you know, I've, I've, never, I've never heard anyone teach on it. I've never heard a sermon on it. Uh, and I think that that's probably a pretty common experience for a lot of people. Um, Pam did pipe up and say, well, Kyle's preached on it, and I have. I have uh, twice. Um, but, but, you know, it's something that we do every week. And so maybe you've asked yourself that question, why the Lord's Supper? And why the Lord's Supper every week? And what are we doing when we gather around this table and we eat bread and we drink wine? What does it mean? Well, what I'd like to do is I want to start a series, uh, a little mini-series on the Lord's Supper. I decided it might be good to take some time to actually teach on it. And so uh, through at least the month of August, uh, maybe a bit longer, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper, and we're going to be looking at it through um, a series of words, biblical words, crucial words that are actually associated with the Lord's Supper. Uh, words like um, Eucharist, words like memorial. Even words like uh, mass or missio or mission or sending or proclamation. And today we're going to look at perhaps what is the most significant word of all, the word communion. As we do that, let me pray for us. God, as we open your word now and seek to learn from it, we ask that it really would be a communion with you and that you would come and give us yourself, that you would be present in the preaching of the word and that you would also lead us to your table and that you would be present there as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start this morning by asking a question and that is this, why is it that the Lord's Supper received so much attention during the time of the Reformation, 
and yet we hear so little about it today. Because my guess is that my dad's experience is probably pretty common. And I don't know if you know this, but there was more ink spilt over the Lord's Supper and describing it during the Reformation than just about any other topic. So why is it that the, during the Reformation, uh, Christians were so focused upon the Lord's Supper and now uh, we don't hear about it? In fact, not only was it something that was important then, for most of the Christian church's life and in history, Christians would say that the Lord's Supper, it was a vital and central aspect of their relationship with God. So here's the question. How come most of, for most of church history, Christians, our forebears, could think of this table as being central and vital to their relationship with God, and yet we view it as somewhat tangential? Well, I think the answer to that question is actually um, found in a really important book that was written over the last 10 years. Uh, There is a Scottish philosopher, his name is Charles Taylor, and he wrote a book called um, A Secular Age. And in it, Taylor basically wants to ask this question. He's looking at this question. He says, how come um, in 1500, say, uh, people found it almost impossible not to believe in God. Everyone believed in God. How come that was the case in 1500, and yet now, 500 years later in the Western world, uh, people find it almost, um, people find atheism almost inevitable, almost inescapable. He says that there's a huge, uh, the plausibility structures have shifted. How did that happen? And Taylor's answer is uh, what he would say is the rise of secularism. And what he does is he charts how and why uh, this has happened. And what he describes is, uh, he says that over the past 500 years, we have, the world has become increasingly, and our view of the world has been increasingly disenchanted. That's what he says. He says it it used to be that, that people believed that the world was infused with the supernatural and that the presence of God was was everywhere right the world is filled with the grandeur of God and yet now we view the world as almost completely physical purely natural that the only things that are really real and really true is that which can be observed empirically and, uh, and, and we see this all around. In fact, uh, most of the way science is approached today, most of our leading science, not all, but most of them, assume uh, that to, uh, to describe how something works is to describe why something exists uh, without doing much thought on philosophy of science. But that's the world in which we live. And we are completely bombarded with this view of the, of the world. And in that view of the world, we find that we are immune from the supernatural, from otherworldly powers. 
Of course, at the same time, we live in this kind of contradictory uh, views of the world because at the same time, in our TV shows and in our movies, the paranormal and the supernatural are everywhere, right? Have you noticed like how much people like vampires and all these kinds of things, right? It, you know, why is that? And, and even in food now, the way people talk about food and self-help, they're kind of chock full of like spiritual. I was even talking to someone the other day who works at a jewelry shop and they said that a shaman came and blessed the jewelry there. So, so we have these kind of two contradictory, conflicting views of the world, but, but by and large, we view those things as to be in the realm of TV and movies. But the real world is the world that we can observe, the world that we can see. And as the church, we're not immune from this. I think the church has become uh, taught that we, we should kind of askew, we askew anything that has to do with mystery. Things that we can't rationally get our head around fully and logically, uh, we kind of want to separate ourselves from. But here's my contention. My contention is that if you were ever going to understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper, that if you were ever going to understand why our forebears found it so important, then you actually have to allow room for mystery. That you actually have to have a world that is not a world like the world Charles Taylor has described, a disenchanted world, what I would call a world without windows, where everything is, is terrestrial and concealed. But you have to actually take on a view of the world that has a world with windows, where there are supernatural forces and powers at play. You see, because, because when the Bible talks about the Lord's Supper, it assumes a world with windows. Uh, just take, for as an example, the passage that was read for us earlier. I mean, did anybody notice how weird that was? Uh, Paul is talking here, and he describes three types of meals. In verses 16 and 17, he describes the Lord's Supper. In, verses eight, in verse 18, he goes on to talk about the sacrificial meals, the feasts that they had in Israel. And then verses 19 through 21, he talks about these banquets at the pagan temples. And here's the thing that all three meals have in common. All three meals, at all three meals, Paul assumes that there are supernatural powers present at those meals. And that the eating of the meal establishes a bond with those supernatural powers. You know what that is? That's a world with windows. And the windows are wide open. There's a porous world. And, and if we are going to understand the supper, then I would say to you, it's going to require that, that we live in this world. That we accept that there are realities that, that, that surpass our powers of analysis. And that is going to require imagination. Imagination. Now, by imagination, I don't mean uh, that which is fantastical or unreal, though we often use it like that. Oh, it's just your imagination, we say. No, when I say imagination, I'm talking about, well, how I've heard it defined, is that ability to image anything and everything that is not visible to our eyes. 
Like this, think about it. You use your imagination all the time. Where'd you park? You just used your imagination. Uh, you used your imagination to, to think of any kind of conceptual reality. The humanities require imagination. The sciences require imagination. Many people saw an apple fall, but it was Newton who imagined gravity. See, imagination is, is required for, for everything around us. It's not simply that which is fantastical, but it's the ability to see things which are unseen. And this table, understanding this and understanding this passage, it's going to require our imaginations, especially when we talk about communion. Communion. It comes from the word, uh, the Greek word koinonia. And it's a word that Paul uses to describe the Lord's Supper here. Look at verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or a koinonia, a communion in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation, a koinonia, a communion in the body of Christ? The Lord's Supper is communion. It's communion. Now notice that Paul doesn't say the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a reminder of the blood of Christ? He doesn't say the, the bread that we break, is it not a reminder of the body of Christ? No, he says it's a participation in. What does that mean? What does it mean to participate in Christ at the Lord's Supper? Well, Remember the context. Paul is here, um, he is assuming a shared understanding that the Corinthians and he have about these meals, right, that we talked about. Look, it, it's an assumption that they all hold. Look verse 14. I speak as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And, and then he goes on to talk about how these three meals, that there are, there are supernatural powers behind them, and that those who participate in the meals, that they are bound to those powers. You see, that's the assumption that they all hold. It might not be assumption that we hold, but it is the assumption that they hold because they lived in a world with windows. And so what does Paul assume here? I don't miss what he assumes. He's arguing from a common assumption about the Lord's Supper to say that they shouldn't partake in pagan meals, but don't miss what he assumes about the Lord's Supper. He assumes that it establishes a relationship, a bond with the Lord. That at the Lord's Supper, we actually come into contact with Christ. And here's what that means. It means that Christ is present at the Lord's Supper. And not only is he present at the Lord's Supper, present in a unique way, he actually gives himself to us there. You say, wait, Kyle, I can't see. Ah, imagination. Imagination, remember. It, you see, this table, it doesn't simply remind us of a gift. It is a gift. And the gift is nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. Uh, it's at the table we get him. We get the crucified Christ. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, Paul is drawing, he's talking about uh, the people of Israel and their sacrificial meals. He says, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. 
Paul is drawing on an understanding of the Israelites um, that, that, that if you were an Israelite, you would totally understand what he was, he was saying. You would pick up on it. See, Israelites had sacrifices, sacrifices that they had to do to take away their sin. And some of those sacrifices, like the peace offerings or like Passover, they would actually sit down, the worshipers, at the end of the sacrifice, and as part of the sacrifice, they would eat whatever animal was slain. They would sit and they would eat the lamb. And what would happen was this, to participate in that meal, to sit down and participate in that meal, to eat the lamb, was to participate in the benefits of the sacrifice. That is, to have the lamb's body in your mouth was to have the lamb's blood applied to your life. To taste the lamb was to experience and have forgiveness, the forgiveness that the lamb brought, the sacrifice of the lamb, applied to your life. And you see, Jesus, he, he established the Lord's Supper in the midst of one of these sacrificial meals, the Passover meal. But instead of talking about the lamb, he said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. See, as we, as we participate in this meal, we receive the benefits of his sacrifice. As we take the bread and as we drink the wine, we have the benefits of his death on our behalf applied to our life. Christ's once-for-all sacrifice is applied to you when we come to this table. Here, we get the crucified Christ. But we not only get the crucified Christ, we also get the living Christ. You see, this is, this is not simply a reminder of what Jesus has done, or even we don't just receive the record of his life. No, we receive him. We receive him at the table far greater than receiving the benefits of his work is to receive him. It's the only thing greater than the benefits of his work is to receive himself. You see, what does it mean to be saved? To be saved is to be, uh, if you're wondering, you're here and you're thinking, what, what does it mean to become a Christian? To become a Christian far more than just having your sins forgiven and far more than being accepted by God, you get something far greater than that. To become a Christian is to be united to Christ, in whom we receive forgiveness and acceptance and a whole lot more. You see, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. It is ha- to, have, to become a Christian is to have the life of God, the eternal life of God, the immortal life of God put into your life, and it's to be taken up into the life of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. You say, that sounds strange. It requires imagination. Union with Christ. It's the way that the Bible talks about salvation most. And here, what we get at the table is we get Christ. We receive him. He is present and he gives himself, his life to us. 
the very life of God in Christ. So do you see why we come every week? The question is not, I don't think, why would we come every week? The question is, why wouldn't we come every week? When we come to this table, we receive the eternal life of God in Christ. That's what we get. Let me ask you a question. When you come to this table, what are you expecting? What are you expecting to happen when you take communion? What are you expecting to get? Are you expecting to get Jesus? Are you expecting to get the very life of God? Because that's what's offered and that's what's promised. He gives himself to us here. How? How? Well, uh, that's a good question. How do we participate in Christ? Well, first, I think we participate in Christ by eating bread and by drinking wine. Now look at verse 16 again. It said, is the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He's talking about this bread and this cup. Uh, Jesus didn't just call his disciples to look at bread and wine. He said, take, eat. Why? Why? Well, think about that just for a second. Eating. You know, we, we are, as humans, are needy people. We require food to live. If we don't eat, we will die. My grandfather is in hospice. Uh, he just went there this, earlier this week. And, uh, and he doesn't have long left. He is going to be with Jesus soon. He's going to be present with the Lord. And this is really an answer to prayer because for almost a decade, he has not been able to see or hear. And his memory has been fading fast. And so, uh, and so we've been praying, Lord, take him home. He wants to go see Jesus. And we know it soon, and you know how we know it soon. He stopped eating. Now, he's not going to last long. You can't last long. We, the doctor knows. We don't know how long it is, but, but we know that, that you cannot survive very long if you are not eating, you see. As humans, we need to eat. We have to take food into our body to live. Why, why did Jesus give us bread and wine and tell us to eat? So that we might know that just as, just as we need bread and wine, just as we need to take food and ingest it into our bodies to live, so we need to take the life of God deep within us to live eternally. Just as we need food to live temporally, so we need the life of God deep within us to live eternally. See, one of the things that is going to hinder your experience of the Lord's Supper is pride. Because when we come to this table, we come as those who are needy. We come as those who say, I don't have natural resources in me. You know, there are certain countries that don't have natural resources, uh, like Hong Kong. No natural resources there. And they could be, uh, you could be deceived because they've got this, this pretty big GDP for their size. But, you know, unless they import things from outside, that island and the people on it will be gone. Right? It will not last. It will die. 
that is how we are as humans. We do not have natural resources within ourselves to live and especially to live eternally. We need a resource from outside of ourselves. We need God. And so when we come here at this table, we come needy. We come hungry. We come as those who aren't competent, who aren't self-sufficient. We come as those who are sinners and who are weak and who are saying, I need God to live. Is that you? Is that you? Because that's why he gives us bread and wine. He gives us bread and wine so we know that just as we need food in our bodies to live, so we need him deep within us to live. And because it's through these modes of bread and wine that we actually receive Christ. See, it's as the bread and wine nourish our body, the body and blood of Christ nourishes our souls. In other words, we commune with Jesus not simply, we participate in Christ, not simply by eating bread and drinking wine, but by eating his body and drinking his blood. Whoa, 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 Kyle. Hold on a second. That, I don't know, that sounds, that sounds Roman Catholic, right? That sounds Roman Catholic. And I know it sounds Roman Catholic to us today, which just shows how far away we've gotten from how Protestants have thought historically about this supper. It shows how much we don't understand a world with windows. If you, if you think that I'm, I'm just pulling the wool over your eyes, let me just, uh, let's just give a couple quotes. How about, um, how about the good Catholic, no Protestant, John Calvin? John Calvin, he said it like this, We all confess that in receiving the Lord's Supper in faith, we are truly made partakers of the real substance of of the blood and body of Christ. As the bread is distributed to us by the hand, so the body of Christ is communicated to us in order that we may be partakers of it. The, The greatest theologian of the Reformation, that's what he says. Well, how about the greatest Puritan? Surely he was like, that was a late night for him, right? Well, the greatest Puritan, John Owen, as truly as we do eat this bread and drink of this cup, which is really communicated to us, so every true believer does receive Christ, his body and his blood. Whoa. Or how about the Scots Catechism of 1560? Quote, we confess and undoubtedly believe that the faithful do eat the body and drink the blood of the Lord Jesus, unquote. Or the first Helvetic confession. Quote, we do indeed eat the body and we do indeed drink the blood of our Lord. See, Catholics and Protestants, they disagreed about a lot of things. One thing that they didn't disagree about was that Christ was present at this table and that at this table we actually feast on his body and blood. What they did disagree about is how that happens. They didn't disagree that it happens. They actually were all in agreement there. And where did they get that idea, by the way? Where would they get that idea? Well, maybe, maybe from Jesus, who said... I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. From Jesus who said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
from Jesus who said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. From Jesus who said, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. From Jesus who said, this is my body and this is my blood. You say, whoa, but, but that's just a metaphor. You're right. It is a metaphor, but it's not just a metaphor. You see, in a world with windows, metaphor speaks of a reality not which is smaller than the thing to which the metaphor points. The reality is not smaller than the metaphor. The reality is much bigger. And the reason that we use metaphor is because words cannot contain or describe the idea. It is too big. And so, yes, it's a metaphor. Because, not because it's far less than this, but because what he's describing is far greater than this. Now, I am not saying, and I want to be clear, nor are any of the people that I quoted saying that the bread becomes the body of Christ and that the, blood, and that the wine becomes the blood of Christ. I'm not saying that. I don't believe in that. But I do believe that the body, uh, I do believe that the bread and the wine are windows into a greater reality. I do believe that it is through these windows that we actually uh, imagine and participate in something much greater that we actually, by faith, feed on the body and blood of Christ. Uh, how do we do that? I mean, Jesus, he's not, he's not everywhere, is he? And, and, and of course, you, you might say like, uh, well, are you saying that they're like, we're taking chunks out of Jesus? Because he does have a body and it is locally ascended in heaven. Wouldn't it be eaten up by now, right? Uh, yes, it's a metaphor. No, we are not physically and carnally eating his body and blood, but... That is the best way to get at the fact that we are taking his life into ours at the table. And it's not just Jesus as spirit. It is the person of Christ. It is the God-man, fully enfleshed. And so that leads to another way in which we commune with Christ. We commune with Christ not by pulling him down, but by ascending up to where he is. You see, his body is in glory, and that's where we are headed. It's not he who needs to be relocated, it's us. He is at the end, at our destination, and it's from there the glory that, that, that where he is, that's the glory that we need to keep going, and he is pulling us into himself and into that place from one degree of glory until the next and that's why Calvin said, we must raise our hearts on high to heaven where the Lord Jesus is. See, it's not that Christ comes down to us, it's that we go up to him by the Spirit. Now I realize that at this point you're thinking, that sounds outlandish, Kyle. I know, it does sound outlandish when you live in a world with window, without windows. As Hans, theologian Hans Borsma puts it, to speak of our creaturely participation in heavenly realities 
cannot but come across as outlandish to an age whose horizons have narrowed to such an extent that bodily goods, cultural endeavors, and political achievements have, co uh, have come to be matters of ultimate concern. See what he's saying? He's saying, of course, when you live in a world without windows, the things that I'm saying sound absolutely outlandish. Is that you? Have you become so terrestrial in your thinking that there's no room for mystery in the Lord's Supper? There's no room for the mystery of communion. So I would say to you that our aversion to the real spiritual power of this meal has less to do with biblical fidelity and more to do with our Enlightenment worldview. And we need a world with windows. It requires imagination. And so every week, we try to stoke your imagination. Did you know that? You know how we do that? Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord our God. Or do you, did you think that those were just churchy words? Just things that Christians say? No, we are stoking our imaginations. We are reminding ourselves of the unseen realities about which we, that we are about to participate in. That we are about to ascend on high and we are going to receive Christ there. And so we say, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord our God. It requires imagination and it also requires faith. You see, we, we feast on Christ, we participate in Christ, not simply by eating bread and drinking wine, not simply by eating his body and blood, not simply by ascending to where he was, but actually by believing him. We commune with him in faith. Faith is to receive and to rest on Christ alone for life, for salvation, and uh, the context here, it's important to note that, that in this context, at the very beginning, uh, Paul tells the Corinthians to flee from idolatry. And then he gives them this, he's just gone through this example of Israel in, in the first uh, 13 or so verses in chapter 10. He draws this analogy with what happened to Israel. And he said, uh, Israel, they experienced a type of baptism into Moses, verse 2. He said, Israel, they, they experienced a type of communion. They ate spiritual food and they drank spiritual drink, verse 3 and 4. But God was not happy with them, verse 5. Why? Because they did not trust in him. Because they were looking to something other than God. To be their God. Because of idolatry. See, an idol is anything that we look to, to be and do for us what only God can be and do for us. And Paul is warning the Corinthians. He is warning the Corinthians of the dangers of idolatry. And he says, listen, when you come to this table, it makes a bond with the Lord. And he is a jealous God. And you are to actually be bound to him in a, in a marriage-like union. You are his bride. And you are not to have that kind of relationship with anyone or any other thing. You are to trust in him and him alone for your life and for your salvation, for your joy and your peace. And so he says, flee from idolatry and beware Beware of the ways that the demonic powers work. How they use other things like meals at the pagan temple 
that you think are nothing to actually draw you in and make a bond with you to grab your affections and your allegiances. Now, the demons in our day, they, they have changed their strategy somewhat. It's usually not meals. But there are lots of things that they use that we think are no big deal that they use to draw our affections and our allegiance away from God and God alone. And what Paul is calling the Corinthians to, and I think what he's calling us to, is to discern the workings of the demons, to discern their power, to turn and run to God. So ask the question to yourself, what things in life are coaxing you away your allegiance and your affections so that you would love and be more loyal to those things rather than to God. That you would look to those things rather than to God to give you life and peace and comfort and joy and happiness. What is it? Is it, is it an amount of money? Is it a type of job? Is it if you just move a little bit higher in your career, then you will have joy and peace and satisfaction. That will make you happy and healthy. That will give you life. Is it a relationship? If I could just have that, that, that romantic relationship with this person, what is it? Whatever it is, turn and run. And run to Jesus. Run to him at the table. Participate here. Because here is where he offers himself to us. Now let me conclude by just drawing out a couple implications. First, implications for Sunday morning. Let me ask you a question. What are you hoping to get out of worship? Some of you, I think maybe you're, you're here because you, you want an uplifting thought. Some of you are here because um, you, you want to see a friend. Some of you are here because uh, you want the experience of the music. Some of you are here because you want to learn something new about God. Um, all those are fine things, but I want to, you to know this, that if that is why you're here, then your ambitions are far too small. Because what God promises to do here is actually to present himself to us and to give us himself through the preached word and at the table. And there's nothing better than that. So stop settling when you come here, come to receive him. He is life. Uh, I, um, I grew up going to uh, University of Mississippi football games. And the University of Mississippi is an interesting phenomenon because um, people would go and they would tailgate for hours and set up in this place called the Grove. And they do the most amazing tailgating in the world. And then you go and you go to the, uh, the football game and then you leave and they tailgate for hours after. And when I say amazing tailgating, I mean like, AstroTurf, chandelier, silver, I'm not lying. Like some people set up AstroTurf, silver, and chandelier. There are, uh, there are huge TVs set up. And then if you walk by, it's like, an, it's like an open house, right? It's like, oh, honey, come in and, and taste my barbecue. And I'm like, yes, ma'am, I will. Uh, it's an amazing thing. Uh, but but you, go to, you go to the Grove, and people go to Ole Miss football games to go to the Grove. In fact, people go to Ole Miss football games so much to go to the Grove that they don't go to the game. You actually go to the stadium, and oftentimes, especially in a bad season, it's half full. And you leave a little early, and you realize that there are all these people that are out in the Grove, and they have never left the Grove. 
They've been tailgating the entire time. Like this thing that, 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 that was supposed to be an accompaniment to the game became the main thing. And we can often be like that in the Christian life. We want all the accompaniments that come with Christ, but have we forgotten him? Have we forgotten that he's the reason? He's the most valuable thing, a relationship with him, life in him, knowing him, communing with him. What do you expect to get out of worship? Come to get Jesus. It's an, it has implications for Sunday morning. It also has implications for the rest of life. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the statement, you are what you eat. I was sitting with someone one time and getting coffee or whatever, and uh, they were talking about sugar, and they're like, I don't do sugar anymore because you are what you eat. You've heard that statement maybe? You know where it comes from. It actually comes from a 19th century German philosopher. His name is uh, Ludwig Feuerbach, and he was a German materialist. And what he was trying to say was this. Feuerbach was trying to say that, um, that actually uh, he was making a point. He was saying, uh, you take molecules into your body, and that actually becomes your energy, your flesh, your skin, these kinds of things. And, uh, and that's what sustains your life, that you are what you eat. You're nothing but a Petri dish. You're nothing but molecules, right? That's what he was suggesting. And, and there's something that, that seems a bit true in that, right? Especially in a world without windows, that you, that you are what you eat, you know, it's interesting in verse 17. I, I don't have time to deal with this. We'll deal with it another week. But, but I did want to note that Paul says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That is that the bread, which he has called the body of Christ, when we partake of that, that we become one body. And then later in 1 Corinthians 12, he will say that you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That is, that... that that in eating this bread, which is a window into the body of Christ, by eating the body of Christ, you actually become the body of Christ. Well, maybe you are what you eat. Maybe you are what you eat. Maybe as we take the life of God in Jesus Christ into us, that that life is actually not just the source of our life, but then it becomes the pattern of our life, and His life gets worked out in our lives so that we go out into the world as those who give ourselves for others, as his body given for the life of the world. You see, this has implications for the rest of the week because when we come to this table and we identify with Christ and we become one with him, then we commit ourselves and he commits us and he consecrates us and sets us apart that we might live a life that is patterned after his in the world. You are what you eat. It requires imagination. Well, where do we end? I like the way uh, John Calvin put it when he said, nothing remains but to break forth in wonder at this mystery. It is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. And to speak more plainly, Yes, please, John, speak plainly. I would rather experience it than understand it. Amen. Amen. Prepare yourselves for the table.